0: National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone.
1: It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security And we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. This show also marks the start of our third year here on National Security this week, so thank you for being a listener. We're going to talk about a very important topic today. As our regular listeners know, nations have what are called the tools of national power and how the tools of diplomacy, the power of information, military and economic power, usually abbreviated as DIME, are used as the art and science of statecraft. America has traditionally exercised strategic patience in our dealings with other nations around the world. We've historically allowed our career professional diplomats to guide the implementation of foreign policy objectives as defined by the President of the United States. But that practice of strategic patience changed after the tragic events of September 11th, 2001. From that time until even today, much of American foreign policy has been driven significantly by U.S. military power rather than through traditional diplomacy. Our guest today has penned numerous articles on this subject, and she has the real-world experience of having served in crisis areas around the world as a U.S. diplomat to back up her observations. Elizabeth Shackelford joined the Chicago Council on Global Affairs in January of 2021 as Senior Fellow on U.S. Foreign Policy. Her analysis, writing, and outreach focus on building awareness and understanding of a restraint approach to foreign policy which seeks to limit the use of military force to the defense of core U.S. national security interests and favors robust diplomatic engagement. As a Foreign Service officer, Shackelford served in Somalia, Kenya, South Sudan, Poland, and Washington, D.C., tracking political and conflict developments, advising mission and Washington leadership, and advocating for U.S. interests with foreign counterparts. For her work in South Sudan, which was during the outbreak of Civil War in 2013, Shackelford received the Barbara Watson Award for Consular Excellence – the department's highest honor for consular work. As a non-resident fellow with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in 2020, Shackelford researched, analyzed, and commented on the costs of a militarized approach to foreign policy and the need for greater accountability in U.S. actions abroad. Prior to joining the State Department, Shackelford was an associate with Booz Allen Hamilton, where she led USAID projects to assess business environments in developing countries. Shackelford was also an associate with the law firm Covington & Burling, where she focused on international trade law. Shackelford's op-eds and commentary have been published in numerous outlets, including the Chicago Tribune, Los Angeles Times, and Slate. Shackelford has a Bachelor of Arts from Duke University and a Juris Doctorate from the University of Pittsburgh. Born and raised in Mississippi, Shackelford now resides in Rochester, Vermont. Elizabeth Shackelford, welcome to National Security this week. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. And where are you sitting this morning for our discussion?
2: I am sitting in Rochester, Vermont, wishing for snow.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, we'll send some your way because we've got plenty of it going on right now. Uh, So, Lizzie, we've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, I want to get started right away here. Early in your career, you were working with Booz Allen Hamilton on USAID projects. Uh, Was it something you saw on those fact-finding trips around, uh, around the world that led you to apply to the Department of State? I mean, what was the catalyst that made you pursue a career path in diplomacy?
2: Well, that was a really wonderful early career opportunity to have because it just gave me so much exposure to so many different aspects of what the U.S. government does overseas. I mean, I had this opportunity to kind of drop into—I mean, I was literally one of those consultants that just like dropped in for you know two, three weeks at a time in different countries. Uh, Not sure how effective that that was for the work I was doing, but for my own personal. Professional education—it was incredible. I got to see what USAID was doing on the ground in a, you know nearly a couple dozen countries, um, and while USAID was my primary. Uh, kind of partner in the work that I was doing, I met a lot of uh, foreign service officers with the State Department as well. Um, And I I got to learn more about how the different aspects of the U.S. government were working um, around the world. And, you know, it it was that time period. First of all, it was my first real exposure, you know, over a long period of time to U.S. diplomats. I didn't really have any background and know what U.S. diplomats did around the world. And, um, And I got to kind of see what their lives were like, what their work was like and at the end of you know a few years about 3 years of doing that i recognized that usaid was doing interesting work around the world but the folks pulling the strings on what our foreign policy was were really the ones working uh for the state department that was to me at least at the time seemed like the the foremost um institution for us foreign policy as as it should be and i wanted to be you know part of the decision-making and implementing body that was, you know, really leading our foreign policy charge. And so that's why I decided as that project was wrapping up, you know, looking around at other consulting gigs I could do, and I thought, take the foreign service officer test. Why not? Let's see what happens.
1: So I, what I've often found when I've had guests on this show, especially those who've served in government in some way, shape, or form, uh, it, it tends to be a bit of a, a calling, so to speak. Uh, you're ca- kind of called to serve. There's something in, in you uh, where you realize, hey, I have these these skills, these talents, this knowledge, uh, I want to give back to my country. Uh, is that something that you sort of felt uh, when you made that decision to apply to state?
2: Absolutely. I mean, so much of the work that the U.S. government does around the world is, is frankly contracted out, especially when you're looking at the development side. Um, and frankly, a lot of what even the military does, it's contracted out by companies that do the work on the ground. So when I talk to you know students and young people who are thinking about a career in international development, let's say, you know, I, I mentioned to them that if you want to get your hands dirty and be on the ground implementing projects, that's that's mostly done by outside contractors now. But working for the private sector, you still just aren't gonna get that sense of service that you have when you work for the US government. It's an intangible. Um, it's hard to describe, but there's something about you know, your your oath of office and about the fact that you are representing the U.S. government. You're not just doing U.S. government work. You're representing the government and the American people. And um, it is I mean, it is a calling. There's nothing else that I have done outside the government that can replicate that kind of X factor of of feeling like, hey, they might not pay us a lot in the the public service sector, but but we're serving. And that that means a lot to me,
1: for sure. Yeah, you, you don't go into that calling out with the idea that you're going to get rich doing it. It's uh, it's, it's no.
2: It's, if you get rich doing it, there's probably something <laughs> going on, yeah.
1: shouldn't be. Uh, so, Lizzie, you served in Poland and in Washington D.C. Those were fairly safe assignments, but you also had a number of assignments that brought you to places where strife was a uh, kind of routine, sadly. Uh, In Kenya, there was the the threat from the terrorist group al-Shabaab emanating from Somalia. There have been a number of attacks by al-Shabaab in in Kenya, as well as internal political violence uh, during some of their elections that they've had uh, over the last uh, 15 years. In South Sudan, of course, newly independent state, uh, having seceded from Sudan with the assistance of the United Nations, then civil war breaks out uh, while you're there. Uh, I'd like to take these two specific cases and talk about them a bit. Uh, which of those nations would you like to start with? And can you explain the situation on the ground to our listeners? Maybe, maybe you could tell our listeners what you saw and how U.S. foreign policy initiatives were put into action in each location.
2: Sure. Well, I'll, I'll start with South Sudan because that was the first of the countries that I that I served in, in what became a war zone while I was there. Um, I... Yeah, I'll, I'll preface this by saying my first tour was in Warsaw, Poland, which was great because I served in a place where I got to see how a real U.S. embassy actually functions, how it's supposed to function when you have appropriate staffing and appropriate resources. Um, you know what a good relationship with a host country is. You know, I, I got to see a lot of that in action. Um, so it was pretty clear to me when I arrived in Juba, South Sudan, just how uh, completely un- unnormal normal that uh, post was, how much we were missing, how, um, how the expectations really exceeded what we were resourced to be able to do. <clears throat> so for me, um, I chose to go to Juba. I mean, your, your early career, they uh, you don't have a lot of choice in where you go. Um, they they change this every few years, uh, kind of exactly how the the early career assignments are made. But for us, you basically had this long list of assignments um, that you could kind of bid on and kind of rank, you know, kind of first, second, third choices. Um, and you know, lo and behold, nobody else really wanted to go to Juba, so I <laughs> so I got my first choice for that one. Um, and I went there not because it was such a difficult place, but because at the time, um, in you know, I arrived in 2013, it was it was a very optimistic place, at least from the outside. Uh, I arrived in the ground, I realized that that was complete smoke and mirrors, it was not optimistic at all, and nothing was going in the right direction. But I chose to go there because I had this sense that the newest country in the world, uh, which had a tremendous amount of, um, of focus from the U.S. government, was receiving a lot of support from the U.S. government, and seemed to be for you know no other reason than we wanted to help it become a stable, functional country. You know, it didn't have the kinds of, strategic importance to the United States that even a place like Somalia does. Um, So I thought if there's a place in the world where you know, a U.S. focused on nation building. This was, you know, when nation building wasn't yet the kind of four letter word it has become. Um, but when the idea of like, well, if we can do nation building right anywhere, it's going to be here. It's going to be in the small country where we've got a good relationship. We've got a long history and we're there for the right reasons. Um, and it turns out all of that was completely wrong. Um, and I I saw that on the ground from day one. I saw our focus on, you know, really kind of short term um security, stability interests uh were driving decisions uh in our relationship with the government there that were that really weren't helping the long-term stability and prosperity of the country. And that we were implicit in the bad direction that the country um had been on already by that point for a number of years.
1: Now now granted with South Sudan they, there's a, a lot of strife that uh sort of led to the the region breaking away from Sudan. Uh so there was there was a security situation that sort of had to be dealt with, but when you're getting a new country up and off the ground, you want the rule of law and governance and economic development to be sort of some of the primary things that you're pursuing. Did did you see U.S. policy supporting those initiatives, or was it mostly the security side?
2: Well, we certainly had initiatives on these things, but I would say that we focused on uh, more kind of the the trappings of, you know, rule of law and democracy than the real substance of it. Okay. And the way this tended to play out in practice is that we would have programs that might be, you know, kind of supporting advisors in different ministries, and we would be working with the, you know, kind of election commission getting stood up so that they might eventually one day have a democratic election. Um, but we tended to turn a blind eye when, you know, kind of step by step by step, things were taking the wrong direction. And the government uh, was kind of abiding by just enough of what we were asking to keep it going. But in the background, corruption was rampant. Um, abuse of civilians was rampant. The the security services that we were helping to train and equip and, um, and supply were uh, really, really bad actors across the country. So, you know, we might talk a big game about human rights issues. We might Um, You know, put out the occasional statement saying, hey, maybe the security services shouldn't be raping and pillaging up in the north. Uh, But uh, we weren't actually making any changes to our relationship with the government based on these signs that the government had no interest in sharing our values of democracy, human rights and the rule of law. Um, That, to me, was really apparent, not just in kind of the policy activities that we were doing and engaging with, but I also happened to be the kind of consular section of the embassy. And in that regard, you deal with American citizen services and, and kind of visa issuances. So I was both issuing the visas for military officers that we were sending to the United States for training. So I, I could well see what we were doing on the military side there. And I was the one who got the phone call every time an American got arrested or you know terribly sick in the hospital or died. Um, and so I would be at this, you know, at the national security prison uh, trying to get Americans who had been wrongfully detained out. Um, And so I I knew that there was no rule of law. I I spent lots of days at the courts there. I Mm. I knew that they weren't, um, uh, you know, kind of implementing the rule of law. Um, But we weren't raising the alarms at that stage, at an early enough stage when we probably could have changed behavior of the government. Uh, It just wasn't a priority for us.
1: Sure. And if we could, how about let's shift over to Kenya. I know you also spent from Kenya, a lot of time dealing with uh, the situation in Somalia. What 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 was going on there?
2: Well, again, it seemed so optimistic when I arrived. You know, I was like, okay, I'm heading from from. You know, I spent a year in DC, um, but uh, rapidly started applying for my following post because that was short, and I'm looking for a place that's more optimistic from the South Sudan Sudan that I just left and. You know, meanwhile, we've got a country where we're going to we're about to have the first ambassador to Somalia in 25 years. They're building up facilities so that we can start having a permanent basis in, in Mogadishu. At the time, we just had a bunker uh, with bunk beds. It was great. Um, and, you know, I was and they had upcoming presidential elections as well. Kind of a selection process. They can't really call it democracy, um, but it looked like a place that was progressing. And we were working closely with the Somali government um, you know, on counterterrorism issues. But it seemed from the outside that we were also working very closely on elections and forming a new constitution and, you know, a lot of the trappings that you need for a functional government. So once again, I thought that I could be part of the U.S. doing something really powerful and good at a pivotal time in a country. And when I arrived on the ground there, though, it again became very clear that our priorities were not good governance, Um, There, it was a lot more obvious why we cared so much about the security situation, because the the terrorist threat was real. Um, But over time, I learned that, you know, we'd inflated the sense of what the threat was to U.S. national security interests. And we used that largely as an excuse to really double and triple down on counterterrorism at the cost of really uh, promoting better governance and the types of things that could address the underlying causes that drive people to join extremist organizations in the first place.
1: So l- let me ask you something about uh, both South Sudan and, and uh, Somalia and uh, you know U.S. mission activities in both those places. Uh, one of the things that I learned as part of you know, my time in, in serving in the Navy and naval intelligence and whatnot was that the United States often tries to help, quote-unquote, uh, by telling other countries what they should do. Uh, and so that we're we're sort of injecting our own cultural uh, perspectives on other nations around the world that might have fundamentally different cultural values than we do. Uh, did you see that happening in in what the stated goals were for both South Sudan and Somalia?
2: You know, I I did, and I think that it is important in countries that we're working with that we promote the values that we understand create good governance not because everybody should have a democracy like the united states but fundamental issues like a functional rule of law and justice help promote long-term stability help create communities uh, where people feel that you know that the government is working for them and they don't have a need to ultimately revolt against it Um, but there are a million ways we can do that and and we don't always embrace the alternatives on our own plan now i will say In Somalia, for example, um, you know, they they often tried to say what they thought we wanted to hear, Um, (laughs) particularly when, you know, when it came to issues where they knew that they basically just kind of had to check some boxes on. And this is not to to dog the Somali people at at all or their government. I mean, these are folks who have learned over time how to how to pull the U.S. government strings. And I kind of applaud them for how clever they've gotten at that. They know how to push our buttons. They know how to get what they need from us. The problem is we haven't quite figured out how to get what we need from from partner countries. So in Somalia I, I distinctly recall as they were trying to kind of set up their their new governance system and they they're trying to set up their the two house um system uh for their legislature and they kept kind of pushing it towards like well we want to be like the US Senate and I'm like you don't want to be like the US Senate have you seen how our system works it's terrible um so you know that again like it was never going to be quite in that format but I will always recall a conversation that I had with a uh, Ugandan colleague at the embassy in Uganda, which has carried I've carried with me always because I remember talking about kind of the U.S. push for democracy and and elections. And of course, we often put so much emphasis on elections. And I remember she said, you know, I'll never understand how in the U.S. system if 51 people want, you know, X person to lead and 49 people want Y person to lead, those 49 people just lose like, why don't you just come up with somebody that more than 51 people would actually be happy with? And that more consensus approach to, to governance, which we don't have in the United States at all. It's, we've got this individually focused system, right? Where it's like your vote counts, but your vote counts amongst all these other, and the person who's first past the post wins. Um, a lot of African cultures, and this is a gross generalization, so it's you know it's hard to say, but in many African cultures that I've been around, consensus-based leadership, at the, you know, from the community level and up is much more acceptable. And so I think that we should find more ways to integrate those cultural norms into the systems that we're trying to help promote, rather than trying to apply like, hey, great, you guys had an election, check that box and move on. Because we've often found that, you know, elections can be just as, uh, you know, just as divisive. Um, as as other aspects of, of conflict in communities. And so um, we have a lot more lessons to learn on that than, than I've seen us really uh, demonstrate in practice.
1: Yeah. Uh, for our audience, uh, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Elizabeth Shackelford, and we're discussing statecraft and the militarization of American foreign policy. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Lizzie, we started off our discussions today uh, covering your observations in South Sudan and and what you saw from Kenya in in Somalia engagement with Somalia. What what else did you learn from these experiences? Uh, how did U.S. actions positively or negatively impact our desired foreign policy outcomes?
2: Well, towards well, I honestly throughout my career, um, one of the themes that I kept seeing was that there was this focus on U.S. foreign policy on kind of immediate near-term stability interests, um, and that that f- almost always trumped any other priorities that we had. Um, and in the places where I served, I saw over and over again that there were opportunities to make kind of small moves towards towards things that might um, enhance greater long-term stability, but that short-term focus, uh, which in some ways, it's just a natural part of being a democracy where you're on four-year administration timelines. But, um, but you know, other other countries, I think, do a better job at um, at having longer-term projects and goals than, than the United States does often. And that's part and parcel of the militarization of our foreign policy over time. Um, it's that immediate short-term security interest over addressing the long-term stability interests that are really in the U.S. national security interest over the long term. So, an example of that in Somalia uh, in particular. So we we look at the counterterrorism priorities in Somalia, which are important. Um, but, but as I have mentioned before, I think that we really do over-inflate the sense of the threat that a group like al-Shabaab poses to U.S. national security interests. Uh, we we inflate the sense that they might actually be able at some point to attack the homeland. They're, they're neither trying that nor actually capable of doing so anytime in the near term. Uh, to the extent that there are threats uh, to the homeland, I think that uh, the ones that might come from there, through our you know, intelligence focus and our um, you know, kind of domestic issues here, and ability to address threats on the ground here, I think that we can handle that better than using drones um, excessively and with with little oversight in Somalia. Now, if you think about the threats to U.S. interests across the region in East Africa, they are very real. Um, as, you know, you mentioned early on, I mean, Kenya was the kind of place where um, I mean, ever since I lived there, I'd never enter a restaurant without looking at where the exits are and how to get out, because it's a place where that frequently happened, where U.S. and uh, European um, you know, citizens tended to go. They were often targets for threats in Kenya. Mm-hmm. Now, why are we threatened? Uh, why are U.S. interests across East Africa threatened? because al-Shabaab doesn't want the U.S. to be dropping bombs in Somalia. We've created the threat to us in East Africa by participating in that war. I'm not going to tell you right now that we that we should absolutely pull out. Um, I think that we should reassess uh, what we're doing there and why. I think that we should have a much higher focus on accountability of what we do. You know, We've been increasing. Once again, we had a lull in U.S. strikes across Somalia for quite some time in the The Biden administration finally, but we've had them pick up again, and and you just don't have the the clarity of who are we targeting and why, and are we addressing the instances where we're targeting potentially the wrong people or or killing innocent civilians in these areas. So, I was well aware of these challenges when I was in South uh, when I was in Somalia when I was in Mogadishu. Um, Nobody went to you know do after action reports on these strikes. Uh, nobody was listening to complaints of people who um, whose uh, you know land and farms and livestock had been uh, impacted by these strikes or whose families had been killed in them. Um, it was good enough at the time to say, you know all all males of a certain age who are affiliated with al Shabaab based on where they were. And to me, my big concern, which we haven't assessed is how much are we helping feed into? Those increasing threats against U.S. interests by our participation, and would it be more effective for us to, you know, be very uh, particular with our military engagements there, and at the same time invest far more in addressing the underlying causes of that type of um, of that type of insurgency? We call it terrorism, which is which is which puts it into a particular category. But particularly across Africa, in places where we see what we call terrorism, these are domestic insurgencies that are fueled by very reasonable concerns that the government is not serving them, that these are minority groups that are often targeted that have no real voice in the government, they have no real uh, uh, kind of leverage in the economy, um, and they have no opportunities. And so if you have no opportunities, oftentimes human nature, we will, uh, we will go to extreme levels for that. So I worry a great deal that we do not focus enough on those underlying causes and that our actions, in fact, exacerbate them.
1: That's, that's uh, uh, frankly, I think, a fantastic observation. There's a there's a documentary movie that came out in uh, 2011 called The Gatekeepers. I don't know if you ever saw that film. Uh, it was a documentary about uh, Shin Bet and all of their operations over the course of many decades. And they actually uh, were interviewing former heads of Shin Bet. And there was a great statement made towards the end of that film where one of the former directors said that uh, it was all tactics, no strategy. There was no long-term uh, thought to what it is that they were trying to accomplish. It was just these short-term tactical efforts that they carried out to try and deal with you know, what they termed terrorist threats uh, to Israel. Uh, and and uh, frankly, that's sort of the same approach that America has taken since the attacks of 9-11. Is, uh, it's been focused on the tactics issue of how do you eliminate terrorists rather than thinking of the long-term strategy of how do you remove the burr under the saddle that creates terrorists in the first place. So Lizzie yeah. you also served at the Department of State in, in Foggy Bottom in Washington, D.C., Uh, What did you observe there as you learned about and managed various aspects of American foreign policy engagement? This kind of opens us up to broader perspectives rather than just the the two countries.
2: So I had a really interesting position back at the State Department. Um, I worked in the State Department Operations Center, which is the 24-hour crisis center. It also handles all of the phone diplomacy of the Secretary of State, Uh, you know, anytime the Secretary of State is going to be on the phone with, um, you know, another foreign leader, um, you know, we're the ones who set those calls up, we're the ones who take the notes, it's a fascinating opportunity to have like this bird's eye view, this opportunity to um, kind of really see how the interagency works. Because again, like the State Department as the, you know, the preeminent foreign policy um, entity in the US government, you're managing that, you know, if you're getting everybody on the on the phone from across the interagency to talk about a current issue. Um, so we got to you know really be the fly on the wall uh, for that opportunity. And um, <clears throat> it was a really important opportunity for me to step back from being in kind of like bilateral issues and regional issues and see how these decisions back in Washington are made. I had learned enough in the field that the decisions are made in Washington and that we You know, we influence them uh, incrementally from the field. Um, I already had um, my concern that uh, what we sent back from the field, from the different countries around the world, uh, you know, didn't have enough influence on what our decisions were back in Washington. This was certainly confirmed by being in Washington. Um, I think that... uh, too many people in Washington haven't spent enough time, you know, kind of being out in, you know, across, I keep saying the field. I mean, you know, we're in embassies in most of these places now, the bunker in Mokadishu certainly felt like being in the field, but (laughs) for the, for the most part, you know, it confirmed some of my concerns, but it also really opened my eyes and broadened my aperture. Um, So I was able to look at a scenario like, you know, South Sudan where I had been and understand that, you know, when I'm saying, Hey, Uganda is doing really, Unhelpful things with, uh, you know, with regard to its relationship in the war in South Sudan, and you know, I'm writing cables back to Washington saying we need to reach out to Museveni, the President of Museveni in Uganda, and press him to change his behavior on South Sudan. Well, I'm back in Washington, and I'm hearing, you know, our relationship with Uganda, we care way more about what's happening with Uganda and other countries than Uganda and South Sudan. So that was able to give me that perspective of why you know I was basically screaming into a void from South Sudan. Um, but it, it also really reaffirmed for me my concerns that the State Department doesn't have the most um, influential seat at the national security table, and that the military really, really does now. And you look at the National Security Council and the White House, And literally, the military has two seats at every table for for every one seat that the State Department has. And that really does impact the influence and uh, the role that the different players are playing in our national security discussions. And it helps uh, kind of seal the fate that that our foreign policy is going to be more driven by military imperatives than diplomacy. Oftentimes, it's just that you know the the timelines are short you know who are we going to send we're going to send the military because the military has the resources and the State Department you know never has been as as you indicated since you know the entire war on terror period um the State Department hasn't been reinforced in the same way that the Pentagon has we have been asked to fulfill kind of a counterterrorism role in a lot of the countries where we've been working Um, but at the same time the military has been tasked with filling a lot of the roles that the State Department and USAID should be playing. And being back in Washington helped me really see how that plays out in these discussions and why that is what's happening in the field.
1: Yeah, and I'll just highlight for our listeners, uh, we've had on this show in the previous, uh, previous segments uh, some time ago, foreign area officers uh, for the U.S. military, Army, Air Force, uh, Navy, even uh, to a certain extent the Marine Corps, uh, but these foreign area officers are individuals who are trained in you know, regional areas of the world. They're given language training, cultural training, et cetera, and uh, oftentimes posted to embassies. So there is a diplomatic component to what the military has created uh, to be partners in the interagency process. But unfortunately, uh, I, from my perspective, even as a career naval officer, uh, DoD is the 800-pound gorilla in the room, <laughs> so carry maybe a little too much uh, influence. Uh, we have to take a quick break. Uh, Lizzie Shackelford, uh, we'll be right back.
0: National Security this week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org.
1: And we're back uh, with Elizabeth Shackelford. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, now that we've covered a range of examples of how U.S. foreign policy initiatives were put into action, uh, based both on what you personally did in East Africa and what you saw at State Department headquarters in Washington, D.C., can you frame for our listeners what the flaws are in execution? Uh, we have these tools of national power, but we've relied far too heavily on, on the military component, the security component of those tools. Uh, what, what are the flaws in execution of American foreign policy?
2: Well, I think that you know kind of the biggest flaws are we have short sightedness. You know we've got this very short term view and perspective. We are driven far too much by inertia, um, which happens in large part because you're rarely going to get blamed for continuing things that don't work, but you're going to get blamed if you change things <laughs> and they don't work better. Um, and and then I would say the the resource distribution, um, which really helps to kind of reinforce that short term focus on. Um, kind of immediate stability issues. Uh, the way that all of that plays out, um, kind of in practice in the field for me is, uh, well, you were mentioning before the break the eight hundred pound girl in the room, the the military, and, you know, I'm I'm married to a marine. I I have been protected by the U.S. military in many many places that I have uh, that I have served in all the places that I have served. I am a big supporter of our military, but. Um, But I think most of my colleagues and and, um, friends in the military would also agree that as the U.S. military, um, U.S. military's role has been expanded, as its budget has increased, as the things we've asked them to do have increased, we have used this as a direction to eclipse and reduce what the U.S. uh, diplomatic corps, State Department, and USAID have been able to do, rather than what would make more sense is if we're going to have a bigger military footprint around the world, we need a commensurate increase in the the diplomats around the world and uh, development professionals who are able to, to manage uh, that process. If we don't, what you end up with is that we're asking our military to do all forms of things that the military doesn't want to do, isn't trained to do, um, you know, and and doesn't need to be doing. So a couple of examples of this, um, when I left the US government, AFRICOM, the US-Africa US Africa Command, Um, which was established at a time with this idea of kind of the whole of government getting involved. It was supposed to be this military command, but it was supposed to be whole of government. USAID was supposed to play a big role, state was supposed to play a big role, and they were all supposed to kind of be equal in this whole of government effort to do our foreign policy engagement across the African continent. But based purely by the resource distribution, um, the State Department and USAID, nobody else could compete with the resources that the military has. Um, The military at that point was constructing classrooms across the continent, researching sexual violence and mental health, vaccinating cattle, constructing hospital wards, and promoting HIV screening. Those are just a handful of examples of things that AFRICOM was engaged in across the continent when I left. None of those are military operations or activities. No, no, they are not. (laughs) All of those are things that either the State Department or USAID should be doing but we did not have the resources. And so we sent, we, the U S government sent the military to do these things. And just consider the effort by U S diplomats in some of these countries trying to say, you need civilian leadership. You don't need a military coup. When the folks out there conducting everything that they see the U S government doing are all in uniform. It just, it, it makes it hard to make that case. Um, meanwhile, we're training and assisting militaries across the African continent and have inadvertently trained several people who have conducted coups in a half dozen countries across different parts of the continent. So um, that, those are kind of a couple of examples of how that, that focus on boosting our military engagement has inadvertently undermined our longer term interests and foreign policy priorities across the continent.
1: I I think I'm going to reinforce uh, sort of your views here. Uh, General James Mattis, uh, former Secretary of Defense, when he was the commander of U.S. Central Command, he was testifying before Congress on March 5th of 2013. And he said, this is, quote, if you don't fund the State Department fully, then I need to buy more ammunition ultimately. So I I think, he says, it's a cost-benefit ratio. The more we put into the State Department's diplomacy, hopefully, the less we have to put into a military budget, and so that's his quote. I, I think what we what he was saying was that diplomacy may help to reduce the use of military forces, which is very expensive, uh, but is you know so it's cheaper fiscally, but it also means fewer American casualties, fewer young Americans coming home in body bags. Uh, what what are your thoughts on General Mattis' statement?
2: I mean it it absolutely reinforces this position and I have found over and over again that you know military colleagues all feel the same way none of them begrudge Uh, You know, those of us on the the side of diplomacy, wanting wanting and needing more resources. I came across this every day when I was in Mogadishu. You know, my military colleagues would say, I've been asked to do X, Y and Z. That's really your job. And I'm like, well, we don't we don't have permission to go out into Mogadishu. I'm stuck in this bunker. I have to ask people to come here. You know, and everyone in the military that I worked with wanted us to be out there doing our jobs so they weren't expected to do it for us. For them, and um, and so that they, you know, they would have fewer conflicts, frankly, to address. Now, diplomacy is primarily a preventative tool, right? Diplomacy, when it works really well, when it works at its best, you have no idea. It is not in the newspapers. It is the kind of thing, you know, that that it's not sexy. It's not the stuff that most movies are made of. It's, you know, if we're doing our job right as diplomats, you're not going to see it in the news. That's one of the reasons that we don't have a constituency in Congress, for example. That's one of the reasons that we don't have a lot of support. Now, that said, there's widespread bipartisan support for, for, you know, kind of increasing our diplomatic leadership. Um, But that often kind of hits a wall when any other priority pops up because people like it in theory but they're not going to fight for it you contrast that to you know the uh national defense authorization act that was just passed uh last month and if there's there's so much support for increasing the military budget even beyond what the military asks for um that which is know, what, happened. <laughs> exactly which what happened
1: that's exactly what happened
2: what happens every year um i mean that what 858 billion in the latest uh, military budget which was i want to say i don't know was it was like 45 billion more than the pentagon wanted or that the administration asked for uh, many things that the military has you know supported scaling back you know, the decommissioning of about a dozen uh, navy ships mm-hmm. uh was just was just sacked by congress they were like nope we're going to keep those going um so it it is a really hard issue to change because you know you just you just don't have anyone really kind of fighting for shifting that balance
1: and so that that budgeting uh for the department of state so you you would advocate for an increased budget for not only diplomacy in the State Department, but also the the work that USAID does. Is that right?
2: Absolutely. Um, And, you know, I I can't tell you what the right military budget is. Um, I'm not certain that we should be reducing it. I don't know that we shouldn't be increasing it. What I know is that the budget that we pass now is not passed to meet our national security needs, and it is not scrutinized um the level of scrutiny over the state department and USAID budget even though it is a very tiny fraction of the military budget is much greater um you know the the state department and USAID have to complete audits every year the military uh you know the pentagon has yet to ever conduct a successful audit right (laughs) since the 1990s it has been a legal requirement that every government agency pass a budget every year and the military still hasn't they failed their fifth attempt uh, just this past fall. Um, so, you know, we, we need to have more scrutiny over it. We need to actually assess what's working, what isn't working. Um, you know, I don't think that we're in a position right now where we're able to fight that, um, you know, that imagined potential two front war, uh, that the, but we're spending a tremendous amount of money. So if we're not, if we're not sufficiently prepared for national, for the national security threats of the future, what are we spending it on? Um, and should we be spending it better?
1: yeah it's, it's it's a really uh, difficult calculation to make when you're b- in both the administration and uh, in Congress uh, trying to figure out where to make that, where to make those uh, spending cuts if you're going to cut spending and where to increase spending. I mean obviously, uh, you know you're, you were in the State Department, you know full well the the threats that we face from Russia and more importantly from China. Uh, there's, there's a massive strategic challenges that we face going forward, and uh, you know going back to the time of the Greeks. Uh, you, you say the best way to prevent war is to always be prepared for war. That's one of the reasons why we, I think, spend so much on, uh, on defense. But you can avoid war <laughs> by having effective diplomacy, effective uh, economic engagement with other countries around the world. That can really uh, reduce the chances that you go to war. And I don't, from my perspective, I'm not seeing that we're doing that very well. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Elizabeth Shackelford, and we're discussing statecraft and the militarization of American foreign policy. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Lizzie, for our, this last uh, twenty-minute section or so of our of our show, I want to get into some controversial topics with you, if that's okay. <clears throat> you serve as a <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> you serve as a senior fellow at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Uh, You've studied this issue of the application of the tools of national power uh, with American statecraft. Uh, What what advice would you give to policymakers today to help realign American foreign policy in the way we've traditionally practiced it since 1945, where we really did demonstrate strategic patience and allowing diplomacy and economic engagement to be the forefront of our foreign policy uh, tools, and we used the military only as a last resort?
2: So the challenge in talking about this and and not turning off a number of policymakers is that there's always going to be that accusation of isolationism. So I'm just going to preface this by saying I am a true believer in deep engagement with the world. I think that we should be out there. I, you look at China, which is you know, kind of our, our, our major competitor in the, in the world today. China has more embassies and consulates across Africa than we do. China is investing in that in that soft power in a way um that that we have not and that we are doing less of across particularly like the african continent but all around the world so that's an, an example for me so i i i truly believe we should be out there but at, at the same time i think that we should be doing looking to do less um looking to do better in you know, kind of uh perhaps more as you say more patiently be more patient with the with the activities that we choose and try not to jump immediately to this idea of, well, if country X is doing something here, we need to be doing something to match it or there will be a vacuum that they fill. For me, the biggest example of this is our kind of military training and assist programs around the world. They are championed by the Pentagon as this kind of low cost way of you know, addressing national security issues. Unfortunately, we do a terrible job of assessing how effective they are. And we do almost no job of assessing what the, unintended negative consequences of them are so again Africa is the the place where I've done most of my work in the world so that's the place that I can look at most specifically. Um, but we've been doing tra- you know kind of hardcore leaning into training assist programs across the African continent for you know kind of well over the last 15 years. Um, the last 10 years terrorism violence across the African continent has increased by 300 mm-hmm. percent We are not doing a great job at that. And we are we are doubling down on it in many places because it seems like a way to you know, kind of protect American lives by not sending more US troops to do these jobs. The question for me isn't should we be training them or should we be sending our own troops? It's should we be doing any of those things? Maybe we should just maybe we should be okay with having a lighter footprint in a lot more places and instead really double down on the partnerships that are working. You know, pick. I mean, pick winners. That's that's something that's often frowned on. But but let's let's go to those countries that really are working to improve governance, that are working to fulfill that contract between the government and the population. The ones that might be struggling with a lot of economic issues and challenges, but the ones that aren't inviting rampant corruption and um, you kind of military dominance. Uh, you know, the violence and abuse and national security um, uh, services. And, you know, we don't need to be everywhere just because China is. <laughs> but we do need to be, you know, across the globe and we can have a stronger, bigger footprint in places where, you know, where we're seeing that progress towards stable countries in the long term, rather than constantly playing whack-a-mole in, you know, in, in dozens and dozens of countries. So I my advice for this administration, for any administration, would be to take a a more critical self-reflection of the programs that we're doing, particularly with our military, because a U.S. diplomat is unlikely to accidentally kill the wrong people or (laughs) accidentally, um, you know, stoke conflict. But if you've got, you know, in a number of these African countries in particular, again, I'm speaking from from experience, I know I can't comment on a lot of other parts of the the world on, on military train and assist, for example, but... One theme that I have seen over and over again on the continent is that we call things terrorism. We back our partners. And what we end up doing is stoking political fights. Yeah. Um, yeah. We end up kind of increasing the power of, you know, oftentimes political, oftentimes they're minority groups that control, you know, the, the tools of power in the economy. And so we help provoke that inequality which helps uh, stoke more violence and drive people to extremism. I don't think that we have a good handle on how uh, on the negative um, uh, kind of unintended consequences of what we do. So I think that we should invest a lot more in assessing where is it working? Where is it not? And being willing to stop programs that are not promoting our national security interests.
1: Yeah. I'm going to make two comments and I got another question to ask of you. So first of all, if you if the, if we think about how many salafist jihadi groups there are and, and adherence to that uh that violent philosophy that are, that are around the world today it is a dramatically greater number than what existed on September 11th 2001 uh, that should tell all of us that the strategy or the tactics I, could, I guess, maybe more effectively that we have employed for the past 22 years were totally ineffective totally ineffective across multiple administrations places all around the world that was totally ineffective. So that's, that's one comment on our application of the tools of national power. Second thing is going back to this topic of uh, strategic patience. If you—I mean, Lizzie, you've you studied this issue even more than I have, but if you think about from one administration to the next throughout the Cold War— Didn't matter Republican or Democrat, we continued on with what American policy had been in different places around the world, mostly, mostly. I mean, changes here and there, but for the most part, we continued American foreign policy, uh, that tradition from one administration to the next. Do you think the polarization that we have in American politics today— Is that leading to the sort of this whiplash effect back and forth of what it is we choose to do around the world? Is that having negative impacts on American foreign policy?
2: Well, I I certainly think that it is having negative impacts on foreign policy. But I think less than a whiplash what it does is it makes it hard to make difficult changes Mm. so we you know we are I mean administration to administration following a lot of the same paths that we have throughout the war on terror years and I will give President Biden uh big kudos for pulling out of Afghanistan because that's a perfect example of something that is hard to do the last several administrations have known that we need to leave Afghanistan that we're not going to win that war but have been unwilling to take the, to use the political currency that you needed to just suck it up and do it. It was never going to be pretty. It was, it was not executed well. I agree with that, but it was never going to be executed particularly well. Um, So I'll give him credit for doing something that you gets back to that, like inertia idea, right? It's a lot easier to just follow a bad path than it is to change that path and risk that it's not going to be better. Um, But that's, what we see with the polarization it makes it really hard to get in there with an argument and get enough support to say you know we're going to rein in um, some of these drone wars that we're still engaged in around the world or we're going to conduct some real assessments about what's working um one example of something that has changed is that there is a that the the big new york times investigation over civilian casualties and drone wars that that came through last year that's pushing some change at the pentagon um, I mean, it's unfortunate that it took a New York Times investigation to push something that we should have been doing for a long time. But that's good. But that's an example of one of the very few things that I've seen kind of change. And we don't know what the impact of that's going to be in the long term. Um, but I think this there's a recognition now we're kind of leaving the war on terror years. But what comes next? And are we going to be able to make the hard changes to equip the State Department to be able to take its leadership role? And I don't think we have the political Will and um, alignment in Congress to, you know, to implement the the legal changes that we're going to need to be able to do that, or to put in the parameters and the oversight. Congressional oversight is, over our foreign policy is something that I think has really been missing, not the kind that just have investigations to harass an administration, not a Benghazi-style inquiry, but but the types of inquiries that could help us do better. And Congress has really uh, fallen down on that role, I
1: think. Yeah, there haven't been too many of those uh, hearings, unfortunately, for the last uh, maybe eight years even. Uh, So, Lizzie, you you were a career diplomat with the U.S. Department of State until December of 2017, uh, when you resigned in protest over the Trump administration's neglect for diplomacy. And Rex Tillerson was Secretary of State during that early period, and he actively sought to gut U.S. State Department uh, of diplomats and funding for diplomacy around the world, something like a 35 percent reduction in the annual budget. Uh, your, lo- your resignation letter was the first to draw widespread attention to the declining state of diplomacy in the Trump administration, frankly, to the morale of uh, career Foreign Service officers in the Department of State. You later authored the book, uh, The Dissent Channel, American Diplomacy in a Dishonest Age, uh, which was the winner of the 2020 Douglas Dillon Book Award, and which was partly drawn from your observations of what happened during the Trump administration to American diplomacy. Uh, what lessons should we learn from the Trump administration with regard to the importance of diplomacy for American prestige around the world? We have about nine minutes left, so I can give you a good portion of that to talk about what lessons we should learn from that period.
2: Well, I, I think that one of the things that that we've uh, that's certainly been clear since the Biden administration began is that um, It does behoove us to work well with our with our friends and allies and to have better relationships. And the the Ukraine
1: situation, I think, certainly is a a good example of that.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, what you've seen with that, um, we don't know what's going to happen with the war. You know, over the next year, we've got support uh, for the Ukrainian uh, government, uh, probably to last for about another year. Um, but I do think that we've seen the the ability of the U.S. to really multiply its impact by engaging diplomatically. And one of the things that a lot of people who don't follow diplomacy closely don't understand is how much work was done quietly behind closed doors in the months leading up to the war that really made that kind of big coordinated collaboration uh, possible that is really kind of fundamental to Ukraine's success so, so far in the war. Um, so I think that Contrasting that to what we saw during the Trump years is um, really does make it clear. Um, I think that we've we've seen that a lot of the places that the Trump uh, administration invested in uh, have been more beneficial for you know, kind of private financial interests of the Trump family uh, than the United States. We haven't really seen um, you know any any positive impact on uh, U.S. security, U.S. Uh, Uh, prosperity from what happened during the Trump years. Uh, I was really surprised though, pleasantly surprised though at the uh, bipartisan backlash on Rex Tillerson's proposal um, during the Trump years though. Um, It was a time where bipartisan agreement on almost anything was almost non-existent. Um, So to me that did demonstrate that in Congress there is a great appreciation for the role um, of diplomacy and of our kind of, you know, of our soft power um, uh, skill set and tools um, across both. Sides. I mean, I remember Lindsey Graham was one of the ones who came out sp- saying, hell no, we can't do that. We we need diplomats on the ground. It's essential for our national security. And I will tell you that is the singular time I think I've ever agreed with Lindsey Graham. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I appreciated that. And to me, that was a reinforcement that there is interest there in you know, and ensuring that we have a place in the world that isn't just a military presence. Uh, but you know, at a time when you saw so much enthusiasm for supporting the State Department, I was quite sad to see in the transition. I think many of us were very hopeful that the Biden administration would come in and immediately, um, you know, start reinforcing the role of the State Department and of diplomacy, and we didn't see that. Yeah. And in part, we did. It wasn't a lack of of agreement. It wasn't a lack of. Will it was just that in foreign affairs, you know, crises take over, uh, just as they did. And fixing the State Department, you know, in the way that we need to for it to really take the lead in U.S. Uh, foreign affairs, it's it's not it's not sexy. It's not that interesting. It requires a lot of bureaucratic changes, you know, kind of that that require time, effort, and money. And I just if you couldn't get that um if you couldn't get the momentum for that at the beginning of the biden administration coming off of the trump administration's just assault on our diplomatic role in the world i'm not sure when we're going to be able to change that so the rhetoric has changed which is great there is no longer just disdain for uh the career you know foreign service officers and state department officials out there in the world um but i think that we haven't seen a lot of substantive uh change that that we do need for that
1: shift I think if I recall in the first year to 14 months of the Trump administration, something like 60 or 65 percent of the senior professional diplomats at the State Department basically resigned or were forced out. Uh, I mean, that's that's all your—equivalently for the Department of Defense, that's your admirals and generals. If we had 60 to 65 percent of our admirals and generals in DOD leave in one year— the nation would be apoplectic because we would feel completely naked out there in the world. Uh, and and I, what I try to get across, I think, in this show is that the tools of national power are incredibly powerful if you use them well. And diplomacy and economic engagement with other countries is a really powerful tool that we have as a nation. And we're basically saying we're going to hamstring our diplomatic engagement uh, during that time frame. It, like you said, the backlash, the bipartisan backlash in Congress was extraordinary. Uh, we 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 have just about four minutes left today. Uh, I, I like to give my guests sort of the last word. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners about this militarization of uh, American foreign policy? So
2: since I since I left the State Department, uh, you know, I, I got back to the states, um, and I recognized that there were a lot of people. Uh, who you know, I don't know, weren't really sure what I was doing. knew it was important. They were like, "You're out there doing God's work." I'm like, "I'm not doing God's work. I'm doing the U.S. government's work." But there was this sense of loss by you know friends, family members. This is all anecdotal. You know, I can't tell you what the American people think. But there was a sense of loss in you know kind of the role of the U.S. in the world, in the idea that our diplomatic corps was you know was under assault. But the American people don't know. diplomats do it they don't understand the role i think a lot of americans have kind of you know friends or a couple of degrees of separation to the u.s military i think that they have an appreciation for uh you know for what the military does and the role that it plays but i don't think that we have that equivalent appreciation or understanding what diplomacy does and as i mentioned earlier part of that is just not um, you know, they're, they're not movies about it. They're, you know, there's not a lot of news about what we do. Um, it doesn't seem as urgent and, and important. So that's one of the things that I've really tried to focus on, uh, since I've been at the Chicago council, um, I've, I've been trying to use the opportunities that I have to talk more about why it's important and why the only real check that we have is pressure on the government to, you know, to, to reinforce that, that diplomatic role, uh, I mean, the American people need to be calling their congressional representatives, writing letters to their senators when when votes are coming up. You know, people should have been pushing back on the budget. I mean, the military budget increased 12 percent last year, which, you know, we're really upset about inflation, but it didn't increase that much. Nobody's asking questions about those things. So I like to try and encourage Americans um, to ask questions about what we are doing in your name overseas, uh, to ask questions about the wars that we're fighting that aren't authorized, you know, to to wonder about what the influences of the US government in other places with regard to peace or conflict, because we have a big influence on peace and conflict around the world. Some of it's some of its positive influence, a lot of it isn't. And so I just like to to you know to ask your listeners to I mean thank your listeners for listening to your show because obviously that's a, a select group of people who do care about about national security and our role in the world. Um, but you know, raise that question with friends, share articles with friends, get get other people to pay more attention because it will only get better when there is pressure for it to get better and inertia will drive it otherwise.
1: Those are, those are fine words of wisdom, Lizzie. Thank you so much for that. One more time, the name of your book and where listeners can find it?
2: The Descent Channel, American Diplomacy in a Dishonest Age. And I always encourage people to look at your local books, bookstore or indiebooks.org. Um, I, I'm, buy it on Amazon if you have to, but I, I promote other other sources as well.
1: Unfortunately, that brings us to the close of today's show. Elizabeth Shackford, thank you so much for taking time from your busy schedule to speak to us today. Thank you, John. That closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for being a listener to National Security This Week. Have a great finished week, everybody. Dig out from the snowstorm and take care, everyone. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.